So this evening I'd like to offer some reflections on emptiness. But before I do, I'd like to say a little bit about faith, which along with um, doubt or questioning as we call it, and courage are three central qualities in, in Son practice. And as great faith, great questioning, and great courage, they're the pillars for the blossoming of um, awakening within Son practice. Bhushan, a Zen master, said, great, awake, great doubt, great awakening. Little doubt, little awakening. No doubt, no awakening. And we can say the same really about faith. So faith in terms of how the Buddha saw it was much more as a practice, as something we cultivate than something we come to ready formed. And when he was approached by the Kalamas who were confused by all the different teachers and teachings and the fact that they disparaged each other, he told them it was actually okay to be skeptical and that they weren't to rely on reports, legends, traditions, scripture, logical conjecture or pondering. But actually what they needed to do was test out the teachings in their own experience. So he gave them criteria by which to test them out, to see were they skillful and blameless? Did they lead to well-being and happiness? And if so, they could enter into them and remain in them. In other words, they could have trust and confidence in those teachings. But if they found them to be unskillful, blameworthy, leading to harm or to suffering, then they were to abandon them. So for me, this points to two things, really. One, that the Buddha saw his teachings as an invitation to come and check in our own experience the invitation to come see. And secondly, that actually he saw his teachings not as something to believe in, but actually as a way of life, something to practice, something to cultivate. So, for me, this raises a question, a reflection. When things do get difficult, where do I actually put my trust and confidence? Where do I turn for refuge? Do I actually turn to the practice, to the question, to the breath, to impermanence, heart qualities? Or do I actually go down old tried and tested habit patterns of avoidance, distraction, defensiveness, aggressiveness, and again, this isn't another thing to kind of judge ourselves by or beat ourselves up about. But it's really that reflection of, well, if that's what I do, does this really lead on? If I follow these old, old habit patterns, do they bring happiness and well-being? Do they bring freedom? And if not, why am I still going around in those old familiar circles? So the question then for me becomes, how do I engage with these teachings in a way 
that I build that trust and confidence, that they become my natural refuge, my place that I go to when things are difficult. And a lot of this is about training. We train in the easy difficult so that we can see the efficacy of the teachings in our lives. We can see how it actually supports us in de-grasping, in meeting and holding our experience in a much more wholesome and helpful way. And in this way, as we do this, our trust and our confidence in the teachings, but also in our own ability to actually engage the teachings in our lives, grows. And when this starts to really deepen, this sense of faith, it blossoms into great faith. And great faith is where we have this unshakable trust and confidence, both in the teachings and the practices, but also in our own ability to actually embody them in our lives, in our own potential for awakening. And in Sun practices, or Sun teachings, one of the teachings that we actually develop faith in is in the teaching of emptiness. The Buddha himself talked a little about emptiness and empty, but it wasn't actually a central part of his teaching. It was actually really developed and expanded on by an Indian monk called Nagarjuna who lived in about the second century in the common era. And by many, he's actually considered one of the foremost Buddhist thinkers after the Buddha himself. And he developed the Majjhimika school, which is the middle way school, from which these teachings of emptiness spread into the whole Mahayana tradition. But what I'd like to do is start with how some of the ways that the Buddha used this teaching and what we can kind of see from that in terms of how Nagarjuna built on that. So when Ananda asked, what is meant by the world is empty? The Buddha replied, insofar as it is empty of a self or anything pertaining to a self, the world is empty. And on another occasion, the Buddha was talking about emptiness awareness release. And he talks about how a monk gone into solitude reflects in this way. This is empty of self or anything pertaining to self. This is called the emptiness awareness release. So for the Buddha, from these ones, we can see that emptiness or empty was synonymous with anatta, with not-self or non-self. And for the Buddha, again, anatta, non-self or not-self, wasn't something to believe in. It wasn't a metaphysical truth statement he was making. It was actually a practice. It was actually an activity to do. It was a strategy for de-grasping, for letting go of that sense of this I am, 
this is mine, this is myself. That way that we could become preoccupied with ourselves. So not-self was a way of loosening that grip of self-centeredness. It was a practice to actually do. It's also worth pointing out here, for when the Buddha talks about the world in this context, he's talking about the world of our experience, not some external, objective world. And what we notice about our world of experiences, actually, it's unique to each and every one of us. You may have noticed, if you've ever been in a disagreement with a partner or a friend, and you're discussing the events that have unfolded, that actually your perceptions of what's gone on can often be completely different, as if two different sets of events had happened. So we perceive the world in our own unique way. And of course, what we tend to do is we tend to believe that our perception of the world is the real perception. That's the true thing that happened. Which then builds into, I'm right and you're wrong. And we all know where that ends up. And I I pointed and alluded to this a bit in the very first day in the morning instructions, how, how we relate to our experience whether we meet it with aversion or whether we meet it with kindness and compassion, colors and shapes our experience. But also, we bring our biases from the past into our perception. So, that sense of what they're always like this informs how we then see what's unfolding between us. So I'd also like to highlight another sutta, which is the lesser discourse on emptiness. Where again, the, wor- the Buddha uses this idea of emptiness, but he uses it again in a very particular way. And he talks, he's actually asked by Ananda what he means by when he, when he talks about dwelling in emptiness. And he talks about this progressive refinement of modes of perception, more and more subtle perceptions. So he starts with perception of the village, so quite complex, a lot going on. He then talks about the perception of wilderness, perception of earth, so we see everything just as solid. And then to perception of infinite space, and so on, ever more subtle and refined perceptions. But what's interesting about this is that he talks about how when we move to a more subtle, refined perception, it's empty of the previous perceptions. So the perception of infinite space is empty of the perceptions of earth, wilderness, and village. But there's a non-emptiness of the singleness of this new mode of perception. So we might think of this non-emptiness actually as a fullness. We've emptied of something, but we're now full of something else. And he also goes on to say in this sutta that this mode of perception is also empty 
of the disturbances that there were there with the previous perceptions that we've emptied of. But that we're still, there's this non-emptiness or this fullness again of the modicum of disturbance with this new perception, this new mode of perception. So we have this sense of actually also that if we think of disturbance as dukkha, as, a w- as we're refining our perception, the sense of dukkha is also decreasing. But again, what I want to draw from this is for the Buddha, emptiness again was a practice. It was something to do. It wasn't something to believe in. And Nagarjuna said it like this. Buddhas say emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. And then Zen, in its uh, more iconoclastic and eccentric way, says it like this. Yamoka Teshu, as a young student of Zen, visited one master after another. He called upon Dakun of Shakuku. Desiring to show his attainment, he said, the mind, Buddha, and sentient beings, after all, do not exist. The true nature of phenomena is emptiness. There is no realization, no delusion, no sage, no mediocrity. There is no giving and nothing to be received. Dakuan, who was smoking quietly, said nothing. Suddenly, he whacked Yamoka with his bamboo pipe. This made the youth quite angry. If nothing exists, inquired Dakuan, where did this anger come from? So we see this movement of creating something fixed out of this idea of emptiness and the Zen master wanting to shock him out of that perception into actually empty this right now. Bringing him back to that, this is an activity, this is something you need to do each and every moment. You find yourself grasping. You find yourself caught in any extreme opinion, any bias, any clinging. So, as I said, Nagarjuna was really the person who developed emptiness into what we now have today within the Mahayana tradition and within the San tradition. And it would appear that he he drew on particularly one text of the Buddhas that we definitely know he was aware of because he references it in his um, verses. And it's um, a discourse given to Kachyana. And Kachyana asked the Buddha about right view. What is right view? And the Buddha tells him that by and large we're caught in this polarity between existence and non-existence. Something is, something is not. And he tells him that for a person who really sees the horizon of the world with clear understanding, they can't say it doesn't exist. 
And in the same way, for a person who sees the ceasing of the world with clear understanding, they can't say it does exist. And that he teaches the middle way between these two extremes of existence and non-existence, of it is and it is not. And the next paragraph he gives the cause of this, us falling into this polarity. But what I'd like to jump to is the end. In the end, he actually talks about or gives us the links of dependent arising, both how we build experience with dependent arising and then how we can unbuild it with dependent arising. And what he's pointing to here is that actually the world rises, or our world of experience, arises and ceases with conditions. It's dependent on conditions, both what we might call internal and external conditions. And dependent arising was actually very central to the Buddhist teaching. There's one place where he says, um, a person who, who sees the Dharma sees dependent arising. A person who sees dependent arising sees the Dharma. So he, he then tells us how we get caught. What it is that leads to this falling into a polarity or an extreme of either it is or it is not. It exists or it doesn't exist. He says we're, we're in bondage to attachments, clingings and biases. But a person who doesn't get involved with or cling to these attachments, clingings, fixations of awareness, biases or obsessions and isn't resolved on myself. He has no uncertainty that what arises, arises and what ceases, ceases. So again, the Gardiner says it like this. Contingency is emptiness, which contingently configured is the middle way. Everything is contingent, everything is empty. So for Nagarjuna, emptiness is both the middle way and its dependent arising. So what does this mean for our practice? Again, another Zen story. Nanin, a Japanese master during the Meiji era, received a university professor who came to inquire about Zen. Nanin served tea. He poured his visitor's cup full and then kept on pouring. The professor watched the overflow until he no longer could restrain himself. It is over full. No more will go in. Like this cup, Nanin said, you are full of your own opinions and speculations. How can I show you Zen unless you first empty your cup? 
So part of this idea in San and Zen about opinions, because they're very kind of anti-opinion, is this idea of opinions for or against, that we take extreme stances. Not that we have opinions that we na use to navigate the world and understand the world, but this way that we create conflict and we create tension out of holding extremes. So we're asked to give up these opinions. So if we look again to dependent arising, tanha is the place where we start to get caught, what we, which we usually translate as craving or grasping. It literally means thirst. And I have this, this image I like with this of a person crossing the desert and they run out of water. And as the day goes on, they slowly get more and more desperate, more and more concerned about not having water, more and more thirsty. And then in the distance, they see this pool shimmering. And they rush over to discover it's a mirage. And Tanha is a bit like that. When we grasp at something, we think actually this is going to help us to deal with the situation we find ourselves in, that we actually like. A mobile. Does anyone in the room have a mobile? All oh, right, it might have been, um, Catherine just turned it down a bit, so it might have been that. Can, can you hear me clearly? Yeah? Okay. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so this idea that when we grasp hold of something, we grasp it because we feel it's actually going to help us to deal with the difficulty we find ourselves in. But what we find is that this is, in a sense, a mirage, an illusion. We actually find ourselves creating more problems, more difficulty, more suffering in our life. So this building of experience is usually referred to as fabrication. I remember one of my teachers, Rob Babia, who was a very much loved teacher at Gaia House, who unfortunately died a few years ago, talked about how this word fabrication was a really apt and good word in English for this process of how we build experience through dependent arising. Because it has this dual meaning. It has this meaning of actually putting together and building something, so making something more solid but it also has this meaning of something being made up, that it's false, it's not quite true. And when we fabricate experience in this way through grasping hold of it, it's not actually quite true in the way we think it is. So we could think of this as a spectrum that we move on. When we grab, grasp hold of something, we get into this push-pull 
will experience. So this wanting or trying to get hold of or chase after something we want, we like, or this trying to get rid of or avoid things we don't like, push them away. And as we do that, we start to cling tighter. And as we start to cling tighter, we start to identify with it. We start to create more of a self in relation to it. And we start to get involved in what the Buddha called papancha. This way the mind proliferates and spins the story. So it's becoming more and more uh, complex and more and more solid and real for us. So what we find is, is as this clinging, this push-pull intensifies, there's this tension, this contraction in the body-mind. At the same time, the self is becoming more prominent. It's becoming more solid and more real. And as that happens, the sense of other, the sense of the world, is also becoming more prominent more real, more fixed. A sense of separation, a sense of isolation is also starting to become more solid and real and felt. The sense of suffering, of dukkha, is also increasing. That second arrow that the Buddha talks about is building, so that our, ex our experience of suffering is becoming more. And our sense of time is also becoming much more real. I'm sure you've all had that thing of wondering how long we've been sitting. It must have been 45 minutes now and it should have been only 30 and that sense of time really kind of becoming very solid and very dense for us. But what we also notice as, we, as these factors of our experience increase is that other factors decrease. So the sense of samadhi, that sense of being focused and present, is no longer there. We actually find ourselves caught up in hindrances much more. But also the qualities of the heart. Our ability to be friendly, kind, compassionate is also decreasing. The more we become self-focused and the more we build this density of experience, this experience of a reality that's fixed, So when we release that grip of grasping, this starts to reverse. So releasing that tension in the body, releasing that sense of wanting and not wanting, that push-pull, will start to actually decrease the sense of self, sense of other world, sense of time, the dukkha will decrease. And at the same time, we will start to have a bit more access to samadhi. We'll actually have more access to the heart qualities. And then what can start to happen is we can start also to move in the other direction. So as we cultivate and develop more samadhi, as we cultivate more heart qualities, as these open up for us, 
what we find is that the sense of self starts to become much more porous, much more transparent. Sense of other, sense of world also becomes much more transparent, much more porous. Time, sense of isolation and separation, all of these become much less part of our experience. And of course, this can be de developed to deeper and deeper states where we start to um, cultivate and experience some of these deeper, more refined perceptions that I talked about in the lesser discourse on emptiness. But what's really interesting here is this way we move along this spectrum. At different points of the day, we'll find ourselves at different points in that spectrum. At times, we'll find ourselves quite caught by something, and there's this real sense of a self. The hindrances are really there. There's a sense of the world and the other as something very separate. And at other times during the day, there's more samadhi, there's more ease and peace. And that sense of self is much quieter, more muted sense of other in the world is much more muted. There's much more availability in our hearts for qualities such as loving-kindness, compassion, patience, generosity. So what we can do, or what the practice of emptiness is, is a practice of playing with this movement. It's actually noticing how when we build experience through this grasping, we create more suffering, we create more self, we create more problem in the world. And by actually releasing this and cultivating qualities of the heart, samadhi and so on, we're actually, we're actually creating a different experience of self, world and other. A much more harmonious and supportive and compassionate experience. So when we actually ask the question, what is this? This is what we're doing. We're practicing emptying. We're practicing emptiness. When we ask the question, it invites that releasing, that relaxing of that push-pull, of that tendency to grasp. It invites a brightening of the mind and calm and a calming of the minds, these qualities of samadhi. It creates the space that Katrin talked about whereby actually we can respond with wisdom and compassion. So these qualities of the heart also become more available to us. And we start to notice how the sense of self becomes much quieter, more muted. We're not as self-centered. There's more of a sense of connection with self, other, and world. That sense of interconnection, interdependence becomes more prominent. But we also note, start to notice not just impermanence, the changing of conditions, but also how conditions are impacting our experience. So, 
how we are actually participating in this fabrication of experience, in our experience of the world. When we meet our experience with compassion, we have a different experience to when we meet it with aversion. And the more we see this, the more we incline to want to meet in our experience with compassion, so that we can actually create an experience which is more bringing of well-being and happiness. So, the practice of emptiness, whether we're doing that through questioning, through the breath, through metta practice or whatever, is a practice of actually emptying of fixity, of opinions for and against, of grasping, and the cultivation of a space in which we can actually respond to ourselves, to the uh, to other, to the world in an appropriate way with co- wisdom and compassion. And the Heart Sutra tells us that form is not other than emptiness, emptiness not other than form. Feeling, tone, perception, volition and consciousness itself are the same as this. So form is empty. But at the same time, we're not going to find emptiness outside of form. It's not different from form. It's not not something outside of our experience. And... In some traditions they have this saying, shunyata, shunyata, the emptiness of emptiness. Don't grasp hold of it. So for Nagarjuna as well, emptiness was also the middle way. And in what is attributed as the Buddha's very first teaching after his awakening, setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma that he gives to five former colleagues that he practiced self-mortification with. He says to them that self-indulgence is ignoble, self-mortification is ignoble, that he teaches the middle way between these extremes. And then he tells us what the middle way is. The middle way is the ennobling eightfold path. So, wise view is the forerunner of the path. It's what sets in motion and guides our direction that we take. But wise view, wise effort, and wise mindfulness are said to run and circle around the path. That is, our wise view guides what we do, how we're going to approach things. Our wise effort is how we apply our energy and our effort in relation to that. And a wise mindfulness tracks what's actually happening in our experience, but also recollects 
what it is we're trying to bring into being in our life. And these run and circle around how we think in the world, how we speak in the world, both internally to ourselves and externally, how we act in the world, and how we sustain ourselves using the resources of the world. And that unifying body, heart, mind, collecting and gathering it around this path of practice, this way of living our lives, is actually wise samadhi. So emptiness, finally, is actually the Eightfold Path. It's how we create a path that supports our well-being, our flourishing in the world, but also the well-being and flourishing of each other and all life. So I'd like to finish with one of Stephen Batchelor's poetic renditions of one of Nagarjuna's verses. And this is called Essence. If my essence came from causes and conditions, it would have been constructed. Essences are neither contingent nor contrived. If I have no essence, how can you? What is other for me is for you, your own. How can you not be yourself or someone else? Without something, there could be no nothing. Do not people say a thing becomes nothing when it changes into something else? You who behold some things and nothings, yourselves and others, are blind to what the Buddha taught. Through understanding some things and nothings, Gautama told Kachiana to relinquish being and nothingness. If I had an essence, I would never cease to be me. My nature could never be anything else. If I had no essence, whose nature would it be to be anything else? I am me, I will never not be, the longing for eternity. I used to be, I am not anymore, the cut of annihilation. The sage avoids being and nothingness. So, thank you for your kind attention. We have a couple of minutes, if anybody has anything they'd like to ask. Um, yeah, I mean, I've practiced in the Sun tradition with Martin and Stephen, but they have a they have a pragmatic approach to the Sun tradition. Um, and I don't know if you know Stephen, but he he, had, he very much has a kind of a more secular approach to to things. So I personally have taken a kind of pragmatic because I've also practiced here a lot with the insight meditation tradition and I find inspiration in both and I find that 
Um, I go through different points in my practice wi where I lean in different ways. So quite recently, over the last few years, I've been leaning more into the insight meditation, uh, exploring some of Rob's emptiness practices. But within that, I also see how, for me, they fit into this very neatly and very nicely. So, um, yeah, for me, I, I mix and match a small bit. I mean, I suppose I would kind of hold a, a slight middle way perspective. I would see transcendence and imminence as possible extremes and you're trying to find a middle way between the two so for me the transcendent needs to be brought into life it's not something we can live in it's not you know in itself any insight needs to be actually embodied and lived in life um, and in the same way the imminent needs to have some sense of connection with some, 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 something more if you like so, you know, in San, certainly in the way that Stephen talks about it, you also have this deep sense of mystery and astonishment. And that, to me, has its own flavor and echo of the transcendent, just in a different framing. R um, Stephen's difficulty, I think, is, is, is with the mysticism of it, rather than with this idea of, you know, the mystery of it if that makes sense, sense. Okay, thanks. Um, reactivity builds fabrication, if you like. So fabrication would be the process of that reactivity building into more and more dukkha, more and more... Yeah. Yeah, so, re so reactivity, reactivity Stephen's translation of tanha, which is usually translated as craving. Okay. Okay. So we've got some time for walking. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.